Well, good morning. Well, a number of years ago, researchers performed an experiment to see the effect that hope had on those undergoing hardship. So they took a group of rats. Now, if you like rats, you may want to tune out for a couple of minutes. But they took a, two, a group of rats and they filled up two tubs of water. And in the first tub, they put the first group of rats. And those rats swam until they couldn't swim anymore. And within an hour, they had died. Now with that second, some people say, huh? The rats, guys. The second group of rats, they put the rats in. And there they are swimming away. But periodically, they would lift the rats up for a short break and then put them back in the water. The researchers found that that second group of rats swam for over 24 hours. Over 23 hours longer than that first group of rats. Now, why such a difference? What the study concluded was that it had nothing to do with the physical break but it had everything to do with the resurgence of hope. The article concludes, and this is from a Christian publication, if hope holds such power for unthinking rodents, how much greater should its effect be on the lives of Christians, the lives of those whose hope is in the one true God? Well, this morning we have the privilege of looking at one of the heroes of Scripture, A woman whose hope not only changed her life, but the course of human history. We get to look at the life of a woman named Hannah. So if you would please open up your Bibles with me to the Old Testament, to 1 Samuel. We're going to be in chapters 1 and 2, kind of bouncing around a little bit. As we continue our spring series on the study of some Old Testament characters Next week, Roger will be back and we'll be beginning a series on the life of Joseph. That'll begin next week. Now, if you've grown up in the church, you are probably pretty familiar with the story of Hannah. She has been the star of countless Mother's Day sermons. But Hannah shows us so much more than just what it means to be a godly mother. Hannah is an incredible picture of what it means to be godly. And what I want to do this morning is as we look at the life of Hannah, I want to take us through four scenes or four stages along the way. And it's going to be easy to remember these four scenes because they all begin with a P. The scene one is going to be the prayer of Hannah. Scene two is going to be the promise given to Hannah. Scene three is going to be the provision of Hannah. And scene four is going to be the praise of Hannah. So we've got prayer, we've got promise, we've got provision, and we've got praise. And as we go through each one of these scenes, I want you to stop and just notice how Hannah responds to God. Because how she responds to God in these different situations is going to set a wonderful example for us and how we are to respond to God when we are faced with similar circumstances. Well, the story begins in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, as we get introduced to three of the key characters of the story. Verse 1 says, Now there was a certain man from Ramathaim Zephim, from the hill country of Ephraim, 
His name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. At this moment, I want to pause and give myself a congratulatory pat on the back. The good thing is y'all don't know if I said it right or not. So, Verse 2, maybe Arlie does. Verse 2 says, he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah and the other Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. So we've got three people here. We've got Elkanah, he's the husband, and he's got two wives. One of those wives' name is Hannah, and the other one is Penina. And we see right away there's a huge difference between these two women. One has children. The other one doesn't. Penina has children. Hannah does not. Another thing we find out in the next few verses is that Elkanah loves Hannah. Man, he loves this woman. He loves her. Look what it says in verse 4. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion. For he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. So here's what most likely happened. What most likely happened is Elkanah and Hannah are married and he loves Hannah. But they are unable to have children. And so what he does is he takes on another wife, Penina, with whom he is able to have many children. And yet Hannah, through it all, remains childless. And not only does she remain barren, But the text tells us that she was barren because God had closed her womb. Anybody else find that verse a little bit uncomfortable? Anybody else find that verse hard to understand? I mean, we know that God is sovereign. We know that God is in control. We know that God can do whatever He wants. But why in the world would he close the womb of such a devoted follower like Hannah? I mean, I can see him closing the womb of some heathen who has no regard for the things of God. But Hannah? Hannah? She's the best of the best. She's the cream de la cream. She's a woman of remarkable faith. Not only that, barrenness at this time was seen as a direct curse from God. It was seen as divine punishment from God. So Hannah, guys, she's not only barren, Hannah is humiliated. She is humiliated. Now the fact that God had closed the womb of Hannah is incredibly important for us theologically. And it's important us to stop for a second and and discuss this. So I want to pause the story of Hannah for just a second. Because when we think about blessing and suffering and how it relates to God, there's two extremes that we have to be wary of. And we typically go to one of these extremes. The first extreme on one end is what we call prosperity theology. Prosperity theology promotes this idea that if I am obedient to God... And if I try to live my life out the right way by faith, 
that therefore I will be given all the blessings that I desire. I will be given those kids that I want, those godly kids. I will be given that spouse. I will be given that health, that wealth, those material blessings. God owes it to me because of my faithfulness. And while there's no question that obedience is linked to blessing, the form of that blessing, the content of that blessing, and the timing of that blessing, those belong to God. Those are up to Him, not us. So on one end we have prosperity theology, and then on the other end we have what is called retribution theology. Retribution theology. And this is a system that thinks that it sees all personal suffering as a result of personal sin. Now, like prosperity theology, there's an element of truth here. Because there is no question that personal sin leads to suffering. There's no doubt that sin has ramifications. To dispute that would be insane and it would be unbiblical. But it is also unbiblical to see all personal suffering as a result of one's personal sin. It's not always a one for one. It's not always apples to apples. Now why do I tell you this? What's my point? What am I trying to say? My point is that while not everyone in here is barren like Hannah, we all have closed wombs in our life. We all have areas in our life that we just wish were different. And we don't understand them. And we don't understand what God is doing in those areas. It makes no sense to us. Places where God seems to bring confusion and heartache instead of blessing and joy. You know, I deal with this a lot as a singles pastor. We have some incredibly godly and wonderful singles in our church. Just fantastic individuals. And some of them are totally excited to be single. It is is right where they want to be. And yet some of them in there would like to be married. Some of them would like to find a spouse. And yet God has not granted that desire yet. I know a number of godly women in here that, like Hannah, desperately want to have children. And yet, for whatever reason, God has not opened their womb. How are we to understand these things? Or even more importantly, how are we to understand God in the midst of these things? How are we to understand His purposes in these things that we don't understand? One thing that I tell our college students and our young adults a lot, it's one of my favorite phrases, is that while our knowledge of God is sufficient... It is far from exhaustive. Our knowledge of God is sufficient, but it is not exhaustive. There is much about God and about His ways that remains a complete mystery. I'm reminded of the great words of Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Guys, the truth is, is we don't always know why things happen or why they don't happen. We don't know why cancer comes so early to some. We don't know why godly women 
are barren. We don't know why godly individuals who want to find a spouse can't do so. We just don't know. Especially when we're in the moment. But what we do know is this. What we do know is that God is good. What we do know is that God has a plan. What we do know is that God has a purpose for everything. And what we do know is that if we will give to Him, if we will give ourselves to Him, even in the most difficult of times, He will teach us and He will work through us and He will be faithful in those times. And like Hannah, barren and seemingly accursed, that which we do know about God gives us great hope and faith when it comes to the things that we don't. When it comes to the things that we don't understand. So here's Hannah. She is a godly woman, but she has a huge problem. She is without child. She is without child. And this is causing her great anguish. And that anguish is only multiplied from Penina. We see this in verses 6 and 7. It says, Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she wept and would not eat. So year after year, baby after baby, sacrifice after sacrifice, prayer after prayer, tear after tear, Hannah remains childless and Penina just keeps pumping out them babies. What must Hannah be thinking? What are you doing, God? I don't understand. Yet despite her circumstances, we see that Hannah remains faithful to God. It tells us that she continued to make the yearly trip to Shiloh, to the house of the Lord, where the tabernacle was, where people would go and they would worship the Lord there in Shiloh. And she continues to go there. And as she goes there this one time, she offers a prayer to him that I would imagine she had prayed numerous times before. And this brings us to our first scene. Scene one, the prayer of Hannah. Starts in verse nine. And here's what it says. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Notice Hannah's approach to her problem. Notice how she deals with the pain. She doesn't blame God. She doesn't curse God. She doesn't renounce her faith. But rather she goes before Him in total brokenness. In total humility. Describing herself as a maidservant three times here. Pleading before God. She's praying so intensely that her mouth is moving, but there's nothing coming out. 
She can't even make a sound. You know, I wonder if you've ever been there. I would imagine many of you have. So much pain that you can't even get the words out of your mouth. You can't even make a sound. Friends, what do we do when we experience this great pain? Where do we go? Who do we turn to? Do we curse God and doubt His goodness or even His existence? Or do we do as Hannah did? Earnestly, wholeheartedly, and continually lay our request at His feet. Hannah remained hopeful in God even when everything around her was hopeless. Notice what else Hannah did during that prayer. She shows her true motivation for wanting a child. This is more than just some self-seeking personal gratification where she wants to get Penina off her back. This is a humble desire to bless the Lord through a child. She wants to have a child that will bring praise to God and she wants to be a part of God's kingdom plan there in Israel. She wants in. And she wants to have a son. Look at verse 11 again. Look at what it says. It says, She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And a razor shall never come on his head. Hannah tells God, if you give me a son, I'm going to give him right back to you. I will be his mother, but God, he is going to belong to you. Hannah makes what's called the Nazarite vow. This is a vow that was typically made for a short period of time. And one of the things that would be a part of this vow is not cutting your hair. That's why she mentions the razor there in verse 11, how it would never come upon Samuel's head. But Hannah says this vow, this commitment, hey, it's not going to be for a short period of time. It's not going to be for a month. It's not going to be for a year. It's going to be for his entire life. It's only three people in Scripture who make a lifetime Nazarite vow. Samson, John the Baptist, and Samuel. Hannah vows to give her son to the Lord for a lifetime of ministry in hopes that he would be a blessing. This brings us to scene two in the story of Hannah. Scene one was the prayer. Scene two is the promise. Look at verse 17. It says, Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. She said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So here's the picture. Hannah's praying. She can't even make a sound. She's overwhelmed. Eli, the high priest, is over there. He sees Hannah, mouth moving, no sound. He says, a woman is drunk. He goes over there, and he realizes this woman is just in incredible pain. And then led by the Holy Spirit, Eli prophetically speaks into Hannah's life and says, Hannah, whatever's going on with you, whatever it is that you're praying, whatever your request is, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. God is going to answer your prayer. And I love how Hannah reacts to this news. It says, she ate and her face was no longer sad. In other words, guys, she believed. She believed. She believed 
in the promise of God. Notice that she ate and she was no longer sad long before she was pregnant. I would imagine as they were going back home, she was looking at Elkanah and saying, Hey, you better start getting some wood for that old crib. It's on its way. Let's go. I mean, she was banking on the promise of God. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, gosh, Michael, I wish God would speak to me. I wish God would give me some promises. Friends, he has. It's right here. The promises of God are right here. These are the very words of God. And yet sometimes we seem to be more attracted to believing a horoscope in the New York Times or a payway fortune cookie than the promises of God as revealed in Scripture. You know, when the Word of God promises something to us, what is our response? Is it faith? Or do we treat those promises as fiction? Because that doesn't jive with how we're feeling or with our current circumstances. I recently spent some time with a childhood friend of mine named Scott, who is a, he's a doctor. And he just got back from spending four months in Kenya working at a hospital there. And this is a guy, he's, he's, he's incredibly sharp. He trained at Duke. He is used to seeing people get better. He is used to practicing medicine and then seeing this amazing response. And here he goes to Kenya. And because of poverty, because of lack of resources, because of lack of medicine, he did not experience the same success. And he was just telling me how hard that was. And he recounted to me one of the hardest stories. And he said, and it was the death of a four-year-old girl. And this girl was the praise God kid. They had saved her on the operating table just a few days previously due to an amazing set of circumstances. She should have died, but she was alive and she was in great health. And the whole hospital staff said, praise God, what a miracle. Look what he did. And Scott went home feeling fantastic. And he came back to the hospital a couple days later and he's doing his rounds. and And he goes to see the miracle girl and he walks over there. And as he gets closer, she's covered with a sheet. And he finds the nurse and he says, hey, hey, what's going on? What's going on with her? And the nurse looks at Scott and he says, Doctati, she's dead. Scott says, whoa, no, 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 we saved her. She was in fine health. We'd had a miracle happen. He said, why wasn't I notified? And the nurse looks at him and says, Doctati, you are not on call. You are not on call. Scott still doesn't believe it, and he picks up the sheet, touches her body, and she's dead. And as he does that, he looks over, and he sees a gentleman, and he knows who, she, who he is. It's the girl's father. And she had heard this entire conversation. He had heard this entire conversation take place. And he goes up to the dad. And Scott takes a deep breath, and he says, Sir, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. The dad replies, It is okay. She is alive. Scott responds, Sir, I don't think you understand. I don't think you understand. 
Your daughter is not alive. She is dead. And I don't know what happened. But I am so sorry. And these are the words the dad said to Scott there at a hospital in Kenya. He looks at Scott. And this is what he says. It is okay. She is alive. I know God is in control. He has conquered death. I know she is alive and it's okay. Thank you. I've cried all week. I knew I've, every time I practice this, I've cried. So this is par for the course. That man trusted in the promises of God. He trusted in the promises of God. That guy had a hope like Hannah. You know, God does not promise us that this life will be easy or comfortable or even at times enjoyable. But what he does promise is that he loves us, that he died for us, that he came to rescue us, that he will never let go of us, that he will one day resurrect us, and all things will be made right, and all things will be made new. That is what he promises. After the promise of a son by Eli, Hannah and Elkanah head home. And as verse 19 says, the Lord remembered her. And Hannah becomes pregnant with Samuel, a name that means heard by God. Hannah prayed to God and Samuel was her answer. Now we fast forward a few years and we come to scene number three. This is the provision of Hannah. And this is not just a provision of Samuel to Hannah by God, but this is also the provision of Samuel Samuel from Hannah right back to God. After nursing Samuel and taking care of him at home the first few years of his life, Hannah follows through on her promise. And they pack up and they head to Shiloh where she will dedicate her son to the Lord forever. I tell you, as, I'm, as I was preparing this message this week, I was just overcome with emotion. You know, Hannah, I want you to just picture this. This is her pride and joy. This is her baby boy. This is her Samuel. Three years old. Her miracle kid. And they're packing up and they're heading to Shiloh. And Hannah knows he is never coming home with me again. He's never coming home with me again. And you know what's amazing about this scene? What's amazing is the joy Hannah has as she gives her son away. It is remarkable. Look at verses 26 through 28. Speaking to Eli, here's what Hannah says. Oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. You know, Hannah is surely saddened by the fact that Samuel will never come home with her again. But her joy and her gratitude is unmistakable. It is unmistakable. You know, as a parent of two boys, I was weeping as I read this. I did a lot of crying this week. 
Because the fact is, you know, as much as I love you guys, and I love you guys, I love pastoring at Wayside. It is a privilege. But as much as I love you guys, I don't love y'all as much as I love my sons. I hope you're okay with that. I hope that doesn't offend you. That being said, I am aware, and this doesn't mean I don't wrestle with this, but I am aware ultimately that my sons don't belong to me. They don't belong to me. Ultimately, my children belong to God. I get to steward them. I have them on loan. But I don't own them. They belong to God. And as hard as it is for me to understand that, and as hard as it is to let them go, I know deep down inside that I cannot love them fully until I give them to God freely. I cannot love them fully until I give them to God freely. Friends, what about us? Is there a gift? Is there a blessing? Is there a desire? Is there a passion in your life that you are holding on to so tight with a vice grip, unwilling to let go and give to God? Guys, remember that these things, these blessings... They are meant to enrich and enhance our worship of God, not replace it. They are meant to enhance our worship, not replace it. And it is only when we truly release them to God that we can truly experience the fullness of the blessing. As hard as that is. Hannah desperately wanted a child, but her ultimate motivation all along was to bring praise to the Lord. And she showed that by her actions. She didn't feel robbed by God, but rather rewarded. There she was at Shiloh. And this is not a begrudging delivery, but an offering of praise. And praise is exactly what she does. This brings us to scene four in chapter two, verses one through ten. We're only going to read the first two verses for the sake of time. But listen to how Hannah Starts out. She says, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There's no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there's no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. And on she goes. Hannah's response to the blessing of God was undivided and unadulterated praise. Can we say the same for us? Back when I used to coach football at O'Connor, one of the things that we would tell our players is how you handle success says just as much about you as how you handle failure. How you handle success is just as important as how you handle failure. How true of that How true is that of our spiritual life as well? Hannah faced great adversity. And how did she respond? By pleading in prayer before the Lord. And by believing upon the promises from the Lord. And then Hannah experienced great blessing. And how did she respond? By providing her son to the Lord. And by heaping praises on the Lord. Now, we could end there, and that would be a fantastic story. But this thing ends so marvelously. 
It's just an amazing story. And I want to show you it. First off, Hannah never forgets her baby boy, Samuel. Are you surprised? Neither am I. Look at verses 18 and 19. It says, Now Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. And his mother would make him a little robe and bring it to him from year to year when she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. So every year, Samuel's there in Shiloh doing ministry at the tabernacle and Hannah's home making him his new garment. Lovingly stitching that thing together. Just waiting for her yearly trip to see her son. And she goes up there, and I can just picture it. She grabs Samuel. She probably squats down to get eye to eye with him. And she says, son, I want you to know how much I love you. I am so proud of you, Samuel. So proud of you. Incredible faith. Incredible faith by this woman. Samuel grew up knowing the two most important things somebody can know about their mom. My mom loves God, and my mom loves me. And Samuel knew that. And this Samuel, the Samuel that Hannah dedicated to the Lord, this same Samuel goes on to be one of the greatest people that's ever walked the earth. He's one of the great men of Scripture. He takes Israel from a dark period called the time of the judges. And he's the transition figure to the time of the kings. He's the last judge that ushers in the kings. And God uses him to lead Israel and ultimately to find the the king of Israel as he anoints none other than King David. Samuel. A person of great character and godliness, just like his mama. Lastly, don't miss how chapter 2 ends, how the story of Hannah ends. It's just beautiful. Look at verse 20. It says, Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children from this woman in place of the one she dedicated to the Lord. And they went to their own home. The Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. You know, the sermon this morning is focused on Hannah. But the true hero of this story is God. The true hero is God. You know, sometimes we wonder why God would close a womb especially the womb of someone as remarkable as Hannah. And if we're going to be totally honest, the truth is is that sometimes we never find out. Sometimes we just never find out this side of heaven. But oftentimes, like in Hannah's case, we are able to look back and see that God was doing something so much bigger and so much better than we could have ever imagined. Hannah wanted one son that she could dedicate to the Lord. What she got was one of the godliest sons any mother has ever known and five more children to boot. 
That's just the economics of God sometimes. He just loves to show up. And he loves to bless his people. Ultimately, the hope of Hannah was not a hope primarily about a son. But the hope of Hannah was ultimately a hope that resided in God. The one true source of hope. And friends, I want to close by asking you, where is your hope this morning? As you sit there in the pews, what are you putting your hope in? We're going to walk out of those doors and get outside. And friends, the world is passing away. It is passing away. Just turn on the news. Our bodies will break down. Our family and friends will fail us. Our money cannot protect us. Our diet cannot save us. Our job can easily replace us. You know, God gave Hannah a son, but more importantly, God gave us his son, Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the second member of our triune God who exists outside of space and time and entered into space and time as he took on flesh and walked amongst us as the word became flesh. The God-man who lived out a righteous and perfect life and willingly went to the cross where he said, I'm going to take on the sin and I'm going to take on the penalty that was meant for you because I love you. And in this great act of redemption, he built a bridge that could restore us in fellowship to God. Colossians 1, 13 through 14 says, For he rescued us, he's the great rescuer, from the domain of darkness, And he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God rescued us. Salvation comes through the blood of Christ. But it is only applied to those who believe. It is only applied to those who put their faith in him. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. I would imagine there's some people out here who've never placed their hope in the risen Lord before. You've just bounced from one hope to another, each one ending up in a dead end. I pray that if that is you, I pray the Spirit of God would move in your heart this morning and that you would come home and see the cross and see Christ for who he really is, your Savior. I also pray this morning for all of us that we could be like Hannah. That we could have a hope like Hannah. A hope that is rooted in the God that gives. Motivated by the God who blesses. To the praise of the God that provided not only Hannah's son, but the Son of God who taketh away the sin of the world. And that is a hope that will never leave us disappointed. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning and we just admit to you that at times we just feel so broken and so confused and we don't understand what you're doing in us and around us. And yet, God, I love that we can look to Hannah, a woman who went through years upon years upon years of this heartache 
And how did she respond? She responded with prayer. She pleaded her case before you. She responded with faith that she received the promise from you. She, she took her baby, her pride and joy, and she opened up her hands and said, God, he belongs to you. And she provided her son right back to you. And in the process, she praised you for you are the only one that is worthy of praise. I thank you for Hannah. But even more than that, God, I thank you for the cross. I thank you for the incarnation. I thank you for the fact that you took on flesh, that you dwelt among us, that you took on our sin that you conquered death, that you were raised from the grave and that in you we have life and that those who place their faith in you will never taste death. Father, we praise you this morning. Stir our hearts. Make us more like you. Give us a hope like Hannah so we can look more like Jesus. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Because we're going to have some prayer partners up here after this song who would love to pray with you and hear about if there's a closed womb in your life, whatever that may be that you want prayed for. So glad you're here. Let's stand and sing this final song together.